New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today says nothing is harder to do than nothing. In a world where our value is determined by our productivity, many of us find our every last minute captured, optimized, or appropriated as a financial resource by the technologies we use daily. She goes on to say, the convenience of limitless connectivity has neatly paved over the nuances of in-person conversation, cutting away so much information and context in the process. In an endless cycle where communication is stunted and time is money, there are few moments to step away and fewer ways to find each other. Today, we'll be exploring the increasingly materialistic and pragmatic orientation of our age and how to reroute and deepen our attention and explore what is hijacking the ageless need for community, solitude, and conviviality with our guest, Ginny O'Dell. Ginny O'Dell is a multidisciplinary artist and writer based in Oakland, California, who teaches at Stanford University. She has been an artist in residence at such places as the San Francisco Dump, Facebook, the Internet Archive, and San Francisco Planning Department, and has exhibited her art all over the world. She is the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Join us for the next hour as we explore what is the attention economy and how is it co-opting our lives with our guest, Ginny O'Dell. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Ginny, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Um, I would like to start off, first of all, if you could describe in 2016, you started hanging out in the Rose Garden in Oakland, California, and, and that was as a respite from all that was going on in the news, I believe. Uh, can you describe why you were hanging out there? Sure. And and that's kind of where this whole book came out of was was this moment. Um, I, I will say it wasn't totally intentional. I think I found that I was going to this rose garden almost out of an instinct. It's also very close to my apartment. Um, 
And I had been going there somewhat regularly, but at this point in time, I was going there a lot, like every spare moment um, and, and not doing anything, not even reading, not writing, just kind of like sitting and I think trying to process. Um, you know, this was not just after the election, but also after the ghost ship fire in Oakland. So, you know, friends of friends of mine had passed away um, and, and that event in itself, the way it was being covered in the media, was really um, problematic, I think. And for those who don't know about that fire, um, just oh, just a little overview. Yeah, so it was a, a warehouse fire um, that uh, happened in Oakland. There was an event going on, so um, I think 36 people died. And a lot of them were artists. A lot of them were, you know, just very community-minded people. So it was a loss that was really heavily felt, I think, by the whole city and um, Certainly, many people I knew were in a state of shock, um, especially because it happened, I think, about a month after the election. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was just there was like this kind of pall hanging over me and a lot of people that I knew. And, and my reaction was to go and, and sit in this rose garden, not without a, a feeling of guilt, you know, like I should be engaging or I should be doing something. But I just simply found that I couldn't. And what I noticed, you were very, very wisely uh, for me, gave us an indication that this book, even though the title of it, How to Do Nothing, might indicate, oh, this is a self-help book, right? Yeah. You know, it's such a great provocative title. And what you you introduced to us in the very beginning is this is going to be more like walking in that rose garden, which doesn't have straight pathways, but, you know, meanders and wanders around and curves around. And and that's kind of, I, I think you use the word, this will be essaying forth, which I loved. Yeah, like the original, or, you know, one of, one of the meanings of the word essay is, is to go, f- you know, uh, trace a path, right? Like you, you end somewhere different than where you than where you uh, began, maybe even somewhere where you didn't know you would end up. Um, so it is, I mean, for me, it was an honest questioning and investigation that, as I say in the book, there were many things I encountered in researching and writing that I didn't expect even myself and that I, I myself was changed through the process of writing. So I don't end up in the same place either. Um, and, and some of that also is um, f- a formal way of of resisting being turned into a soundbite. Um, so, so much of the problem that I am trying to identify in this book is, you know, has to do with knee-jerk reaction, uh, which the attention economy runs on, um, and this inability to see context and nuance, like this ability that's being eroded by being bombarded with the most reduced version of information all day. And so I think I shaped the book in a way that where I, I tried to make it so that you can't do that. With it. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we, you just took our hand and and we walked side by side, and you took us to surprising places. I must say, it was it, <laughs> it was really fun. Uh, and I mean, not a quick read in that way. You know, you don't just flip through it, but you you meander slowly and contemplate. It was wonderful. One of the things that you use in the very beginning of the book is you tell a story of uh, a Chinese, an ancient Chinese story of the useless tree. Yeah. And can you can you describe why you use that and what that story was? Sure. Um, so that actually a friend of mine um, told me that I should definitely look into Zhuangzi 
who uh, was, you know, the, the writer of that story, because I think I, I had been telling him about my project and that I was interested in the the usefulness of uselessness. And he's like, oh, well, you need, definitely need to look at, at this body of, of stories. And so one of the stories was about a tree that is quite large. Um, it's actually so large that it, in the story, is shading thousands of teams of oxen. Um, and a carpenter comes along and sees it and kind of disdainfully is like... Uh, that tree only got to be so big because it's useless as timber, basically. Um, it's it's not the right shape. Um, and then the tree comes to him in a dream, basically mocks him and says, you know, who are you to call me useless? Um, you don't even really know what usefulness is. And meanwhile, you're a mortal man about to die. <laughs> and uh, um, it's just like, it's, I mean, a lot of the stories, you know, a lot of Zhuangzi stories are really funny because they, they turn on this kind of irony of like, the, the joke of that story is that our version of usefulness is so narrow that we can't see very obvious, you know, other forms of usefulness, like the fact that it's shading all of these animals or the fact that it's been useful for the tree itself. It's still alive. Um, it's still there because it, it couldn't be so easily appropriated. And I was just really taken with that story because I realized we had a real life version of that in Oakland, which is a tree, an old growth redwood tree, which I did not know about. Um, called Old Survivor, and it's 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 really like a real life version. It was not cut down in the 1800s because it was um, considered small by old growth redwood standards, and I think it's also a bit of an odd shape and it's hard to get to. It's kind of out on a rocky outcrop, um, and yeah, there you go, right? It's like it wasn't cut down because it wasn't the right. It didn't lend itself to the lumber industry, <laughs> you know, and so in its use uselessness, it was useful. So here is this old tree, more than 500 years old, that exists there in the hills of Oakland somehow, and really a reminder of the context from which we came, where the whole hillside was full of redwoods at one time, much bigger than that one even. Yeah, it's really incredible. And, you know, that's not that long ago. You know, um, I, I... you know, I'm someone, I grew up in California. I spend a lot of time up north. Um, I, I seek out old growth redwood forests. And now they're these, you know, amazing state parks. And it's like, it's crazy to think that we could have had one right here, right? Um, uh, something I mentioned at the end of the book is a map by um, Liam O'Donohue and T.L. Simon. So Liam is the, the host of East Bay Yesterday, which is a uh, history podcast specific to Oakland. And T.L. Simons is an illustrator, and they made a map of all of the plants and animals that have gone extinct in Oakland. Um, so, uh, or or not necessarily specific spe- species, but like old growth redwoods, like when um, those mostly disappeared, as well as things like the Key System, which was a mass transportation system that we had, um, the Ohlone Shell Mounds, like all of these kinds of um, really uh, really rich history that uh, is. It's, it's sort of tragic to, to look at the map because you feel that it's, it's slipping away or it has slipped away, but it's also this reminder that it's not, it's not this abstract sort of ancient thing. Like, it, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Exactly. And I know that, that you mentioned that in the book how you're a bird watcher. <laughs> and, and, that's, and somehow this is all connected, you know, that this has taught you something about attention in some ways being a bird watcher well how does that go with attention uh, i think 
one of the things I was really trying to explore, and I, I still am, honestly, is um, qualities of attention, different um, different qualities of attention, and also how they affect your sense of time. So uh, in the attention economy, uh, for example, advertising. Um, advertising online uh, is often, you know, the effectiveness is measured in amount of time you spend on a website or a number of clicks, right? Um, it assumes that all attention is the same. It's all rather shallow. Um, so if you, someone's looking at it longer rather than shorter, then that, that's better, right? Um, it doesn't really make any room for the possibility of different kinds of attention, like deeper, more critical attention. Like what if I'm looking at an ad critically? They can't measure that, right? Um, and so... Uh, you know, definitely the attention economy runs on and encourages and produces a form of attention that's very shallow and reactive and not seeking context. But, you know, for me, that's all the more reason to make an effort to practice or develop forms of attention that are different from that, um, that maybe proceed at a slower pace or a different scale uh, from a different angle. And, and these are all things that I have thought about for a long time as an artist and as someone who looks at art, um, a lot of the examples in the book that I give of art pieces that I appreciate are ones that can help you do that. They're almost like a attention prosthetic or something that lets you um, pay this different kind of attention that uh, ends up being a really important defense when you are then faced with the attention economy. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Jenny O'Dell and she's the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, JennyOdell.com. Or you can also go to the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jenny O'Dell. She's the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny, as we're talking about attention and the kind of attention, I'm thinking of something that you wrote uh, and you experienced when you went to a concert. Mm -hmm. It may have been with John Cage or mm -hmm. some, was it with John Cage at the in San Francisco? And Help us understand how you were affected by that concert and what was the content of that concert. Sure. Yeah. So I, I had been familiar with John Cage. You know, I, I went to art school for, for grad school. Um, 
And I think I had seen documentation of some of his pieces, but I think it's important that I had never seen one live. And it's also important that the way he tends to score his pieces, it's it's different every time it's performed. So um, I was at the symphony, San Francisco Symphony, which as a classical music nerd, um, you know, I know that there is sort of a protocol to that. Like um, you, you are quiet as an audience member. The uh, orchestra wears all black. There's like the part where they're tuning and, you know, this kind of decorum to, to that space. And in this particular piece, this entire stage setup was different. There were things like, you know, a place for a player to shuffle cards into a microphone. There uh, was a lot of sort of chance operation. The the liner notes said this piece will uh, this piece will last anywhere between like 15 and 30 minutes, depending on what happens, which is like not something you would normally see in liner notes. The you know there were vocalists, but the vocalizations they were making were very strange. And um, I noticed that you know people were sort of um, as I'm sure is common at a lot of John Cage performances, kind of sh- uh, shifting around in their seats almost like uncomfortably because it's sort of funny or it's just like very out of the ordinary. And at some point, Michael Tilson Thomas used a blender um, to make a milkshake. And because the blender is in the score and people at that point, like people just like couldn't hold it in anymore and started laughing. (laughs) And it just totally broke through this uh, film of like assumptions about like how you were supposed to act in that space and what you're hearing. Um, But more than that, because these sounds were so, so kind of pedestrian and and that's, you know, John Cage's whole thing is that all sound is music. Um, I walked out onto the street and I've at that point had lived in San Francisco for many years. And I, I'm speaking literally, like I heard sounds consciously in a way that I just never had. And it changed the way that I hear sound forever for, for good. Like my, my, my sense of hearing was never the same. It was almost like the equivalent maybe of getting a hearing aid or something. Right. And it's, and I, as I say in the book, it's not that I was necessarily hard of hearing, like presumably these sounds were making their way into my ears and my brain. Um, but they were not making it to the level of consciousness. I wasn't paying attention to them. And this is kind of what I mean by art that, that helps you because this piece was necessary to draw my attention to sound. Um, once I only needed it once. And then it, you know, that was true of the way that I hear, you know, subsequently after that. So it really expanded your ability to hear. I mean, you were siloed before that in some ways in your hearing. You didn't, you'd walk down the street and you would just uh, tone out all of those street noises. But now they're coming into your being after that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, in, in then that that takes me to the role of the artist in and writers, artists, musicians in our culture, you being one, uh, the art installation that I mentioned uh, that you were artists in residence at the San Francisco Dump. And I, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we've got to describe yeah. to, to our listeners what that was like and what came out of that. Yeah, that was one of my favorite, no, that was probably my favorite artist residency I've ever done. Um, so it was at Recology SF, which is um, kind of towards South San Francisco a little bit. Um, I also want to just say that they have amazing art exhibitions three times a year because there's three rounds of um, residents every year. And I highly recommend, like, those Those are some of the best art exhibitions I've ever been to. So I did this in, in 2015, and I basically had three months uh, where I had a studio on the site, and then I had access to the public disposal area, which is not 
the trash that you're throwing out in trash bags. It's more kind of um, U-Hauls, decluttering, debris, things going out of business. Um, and my my project, which is unlike what I think normally or maybe more commonly happens there, which is that you make, you use the trash as material. Um, I didn't use it as material and I didn't make anything. I simply researched 200 objects, um, almost to a degree of absurdity. Like, you know, what is the address of the factory where this was made? Why was this made? What is it made out of? What does that process look like? Is there a commercial for this thing on YouTube? Uh, like why, what do people think about this thing? You know, just on and on and on, you know, kind of drove myself crazy at a certain point, but that's just how I work. So are so. you saying like, if you see the exhibit, it's like going through a museum of mm -hmm. 200 pieces, each one in its own room, so to speak, with all of its history and, and makeup and, and lots of information on each one. I mean, it would take hours and hours and days and days to go through it, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I was really pleased that some people who came to the first night of the exhibition um, came back the next day because they wanted to look at the rest of the objects. <laughs> and, and I should describe the, the way that it looked was basically that I had white shelves and I had these objects on them. And then I had these very bureaucratic looking tags because my project was called the Bureau of Suspended Objects. I'm the Bureau. It's a one person Bureau. <laughs> um, and they had QR codes on them that you could scan with your phone. And so you could see, you know, like street Google street view of the factory, watch the commercial, you know, and yeah, I did see people kind of going, making their way, down scanning every single one. And it has a kind of similar effect, or I, I hoped it had a similar effect to the to the cage piece, which is that um, after a certain amount of time, I wasn't selecting for interesting looking objects. I was, I was just going in there and picking things up off the floor. And, you know, it's anything from, you know, a bank ledger from 1906 to a My Little Pony from 2011. It's really like anything. And you very quickly realize that, you know, just even, you know, my coffee mug right here is like, there is something very strange in the story of how this thing was made. Um, even if it's not obviously strange, it's, just, it's one of those things where like the more you think about it, the more, you know, this something had to mold this plastic on top here. And, uh, you know, the, the processes of how this was made, how it was marketed, uh, it's probably not made the same way anymore. At, at a certain point, everything starts to seem like a limited edition object, even though we, you wouldn't think of it that way. Right. Um, and it, it kind of destabilizes things in a way that I really love, where you can't take anything for granted anymore. Exactly. So you mentioned some other art installations that are kind of like this insofar as it's not making a new something out of something, but but uh, two of them that you mentioned that I recall is Eleanor Coppola's Windows, her mm -hmm. map, and also... Oh, Scott Pollock. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. So mention those two, if you would. Yeah. Um, so And I love those for, for kind of the same reason. So the Eleanor Coppola piece, and I, I think it's, it's significant that she went on to bec become a documentary filmmaker. This is such a documentary filmmaker kind of piece to make, but... Um, she made a map of different um, kind of, not bodegas, but kind of store, small corner store type windows, um, and then had a specific day in which people were invited to go to that window and just observe it, and that whatever was happening inside that window was the art. And I think, you know, this is in the 70s. It's really important also to note that 
Um, public art typically in a city is often like some kind of giant steel sculpture that looks like it landed from outer space. And it's like, here's the art. You get it or you don't, you know? And this was so, there's something so generous about this to me where it's like, no, like the art is already here. I don't need to remove it to a gallery context. It's just what is inside this window. And like the John Cage piece, it will always be different. Um, and then the Scott Pollock piece, which was much more recent, I think it was a couple years ago, um, in San Diego on a on a cliff overlooking the ocean, he had a set of a small group of chairs cordoned off with that kind of I don't know what you call it, but the red sort of VIP the VIP yeah, exactly the VIP room yeah um, and uh, oh and and the name of the piece was Applause Encouraged. So he had people sign up for this experience. Um, he ushered them in. They sat at their seats. They were I think there's a little sign that says like kind of no photos. Um, they watched the sunset, they clapped, and refreshments were served. <laughs> so, so just this collective watching the sunset together, just it, I just loved it. I, I, I love this idea. And now now going back to all of this about, about attention economy, and you make a case for not just dropping out and, and going off into the woods and just turning off all of our devices. But it's something about resisting in place as, as a way to resist this co-opting of our attention that's been commodified. Uh, well, it's, it's big finances now these days. Right. Yeah, it's it it was you know it's hard to thread the needle on that one, and I I, I tried I tried to do that, um, just in observing myself where it's like I definitely have the impulse sometimes, you know like you have a feeling of wanting to escape right, and I think it's just it it took me a while to tease apart you know like what is it that I actually want to escape because I think that it's really easy for it to feel like you want to escape for example, politics altogether, or like, uh, you know, I'm going to throw my phone out the window. I'm never going to look at the news. I'm going to go move to a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, but the more I think about it, it's like, no, that's, you know, that's, that's not what I want. I think we also have examples of from the past where like there, that doesn't often doesn't work, you know? And so I, I realize that what I'm actually trying to escape is not politics and it's not other people and it's not like being in the world what i'm trying to escape is the attention economy <laughs> you know like i'm trying to escape this very specific cycle in which um you know i am faced with a bunch of information that produces anxiety that may then drives me back to that social media and you know attention economy then i get more of it that i come back and i'm like oh i'm just a water wheel <laughs> for this this industry, right? And everyone is a water wheel for this industry. And like, that's what I want to walk away from. Um, and so it's not necessarily an issue of disengaging altogether. It's disengaging from that. And actually, ironically, engaging more with, and you know, for me, people around me, you know, organizations around me, things, um, things that are out that exist outside the attention economy, and often I think exist outside of the very like narrow myopic sense of time and space that you encounter um, when you're in that state of anxiety. So for me, it's been really important to, you know, connect up with groups that are, you know, have been doing work for a really long time since long before the election, right? Since long before um, even I started thinking about these things. And uh, I think of something like 
uh, the people in the peace and justice movement. There are some people in there who are now in their 80s and 90s who have been at that kind of one-on-one meeting together mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Yeah, and it uh, works. I mean, that's what I, I, like, you know, especially towards the end of the book, I talk about um, how, you know, it would seem that a lot of the, the context t- contextlessness of uh, information online and having to sort of shout into the void and get the attention of strangers and, and sort of shout over other people is just doesn't, it doesn't bode well for um, the ways that we need to collect and have conversations. And that's kind of tried and true in the history of activism. We'll talk more about that in a moment. I'm here with Ginny O'Dell. She is the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Ginny O'Dell. She's the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And Ginny, I'm reminded of something you wrote about that really struck me about how it was at one time we would go to, let's say, our phone on the wall and make a call to another person and we'd have that conversation, and maybe we'd call back if we didn't finish the conversation. Mm-hmm. And now it's very, very different, as you say. It's just coming at us, and we click, and we go for something, and we, I think you call it, a, like, two-dimensional. Yeah, I think what it's missing is is intentionality, context, and, and agency. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember the, the phone on the wall. You know, like, I remember that, you know, if I wanted to talk on the phone, uh, we did not have a cordless phone in my house. So I had to be, if I was on the phone, I was standing in a specific part of the house, right? Um, I went there to contact someone, um, even if it was, right, if it was just a chat, right? That's still, I've still chosen a person to chat with for a certain amount of time. Um, and it wasn't this sort of, like, ambient thing that was always in the background. It was something that I made a decision about. And and to me, it feels very similar to, uh, you know, what I think I describe in the same section where the difference between, for example, being on Twitter or going to the library. So if you, when I go to the library, um, that's a spatial experience where you have to make decisions about the information that you want. If I am researching you know, ecology, I have to go to the ecology section of the library. And the things that I see there make sense next to each other, I because I'm in the ecology section. So, um, you know, it's so different than, you know, when I go onto Twitter, there's a lot of information there that I, that is immediately thrown at me. Uh, I, I've compared it before to like, it's as if you were to go into a library and have books thrown at you <laughs> as soon as you walk in the door. Well, you know what I call that, Jenny? Uh, like being in the library, what I call that is incidental contact. Mm. You hear what I'm saying? That it's like 
you go and you're looking for this one book, but you notice this other book is next to it, and you go, oh, that looks interesting. Mm -hmm. That's that incidental contact that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't gone for that mm -hmm. first one in the first place. Yeah. So yeah. it's... Yeah, and I lo I mean, I've found some of the most important books to me, like, in that way, you know, and, and not just libraries, but, you know, I live near a great bookstore, uh, Walden Pond, and just the way they arrange it makes that very easy, right? Um, and so it... It's but but I but I think that that's still so different from from the experience of having a bunch of unrelated information thrown at you, and it's not just unrelated. I mean, it depends on you know who you follow on Twitter, but I think for a lot of people, it's this kind of dystopian mix of things that are really upsetting, things that are supposed to be funny, things that um, have to do with your close friends, things that have to do with strangers. Like all of these contexts are completely different, and you're just kind of like there's this whiplash of kind of going back and forth and you never sort of gain that sense of intentionality and agency where you, you never even had a chance to decide if you wanted to see anything or what you wanted to see. Um, and especially as these behaviors become more addictive and more ingrained, it's like you're not even making a decision about whether to be on Twitter in the first place. Um, and so I think that there's so, so much potential in anything that um, can kind of recenter or, or replace the center of gravity back in yourself where you are making those decisions. Um, and unfortunately, you know, uh, this technology is designed specifically to take that away from you. But I think even just being aware of that is kind of a first step. That's right. That's right. Just being, knowing uh, wherever we're clicking and maybe doing our research, we are being researched. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So that, that, that not only are we researching, somebody, some, uh, all those engineers out there who have done all those algorithms of clicking and everything, mm -hmm. they're noticing where we are and what we're doing, and then they, they start to move us toward something you talk about, um, the gated communities of our attention. I mean, we talk, I, I, that just really struck me because you think of gated communities that we kind of cordon ourselves off into these little silos of how we live and who we live with. But you take it even a step further as gated communities of our attention. And that, that you talk about social media and the internet can be like that as well. Yeah, and, and that phrase specifically is meant to, um, you know, I'm trying to tie some of these issues that I'm talking about that seem like they would strictly have to do with the internet. Um, I'm trying to tie them to, um, you know, environmental politics and, and things like land use. So it's, you know, it's all well and good for me <laughs> to say things like, uh, you know, you should, one antidote to the attention economy is to spend more time in contact with the non-human world, right? It's easy for me to say that, easy for me to go to the Rose Garden. I live near a Rose Garden, but you just look simply at like the way a city is laid out, especially Oakland, right? There's more parks in one part than there are in another. Um, and then I also talk about the fact that, uh, you know, several tech giants have been known for actually placing a lot of restrictions on themselves with how they use technology, not, you know, not letting their children use um, phones at the table. Um, <laughs> so these are the, the, the movers and shakers of all the technology that also limit it for their own children. Yeah, right. It's like you, at a certain point, you have enough money to maybe you buy your weekend home and then you go there with your family and you don't use technology, right? It's like, it, it's, 
But I that's think, a privilege. It's a privilege, right? And so, yeah, that's when I say gated communities of attention, it's it's my concern that these, the problems of the attention economy are are kind of in a really intricate way bound up with things that we wouldn't consider part of the attention economy, but are, you know, part of the basis of the kinds of attention that you would need to cultivate to be able to defend yourself. So if you don't have access to those kinds of spaces, um, or for example, you're a parent who has, you know, an overworked single parent with three kids, like, of course, you're going to put iPads in front of them because you're just (laughs) trying to get through the day, right? Exactly. Exactly. So you're saying that even, even though there there's a varying degree of opportunity for mm-hmm. different people to participate in certain ways doesn't mean we shouldn't participate then. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing that was really important for me to, to talk about in the book, because, you know, the, the easiest argument to what it, or the easiest rebuttal to what I'm saying is like, well, you know, what about someone who, you know, has trying to hold down three jobs and like has no time to do the things that you're talking about. Like this sounds like a luxury, right? And I agree with that. I don't think it should be a luxury, um, but I do acknowledge that there's a kind of, um, you know, I call it a margin, a margin of refusal that varies for different people, right? Like I have, I think I am very privileged and I have a wide margin. It's not the widest, but it is, you know, a margin um, where I can make decisions like to go sit in the rose garden, um, whereas you know uh, there are a lot of people for whom that's not an option. And so, um, you know, what I say in the book essentially echoes what a lot of people have said about privilege, which is that if you find yourself with some of it, you should use it to create more space for others. You know, right? Um, but in order to do that, you have to disengage from the attention economy. Um, in order to, you know, first of all, think straight. Um, also find and and communicate intentionally with other people that could help you with that or have been working on that already. And um, as I say at the end of the book, um, I think that these problems are bound up in with, you know, not only the environment, but, um, you know, just capitalism in general and that you can't, there's no, there's no quick fix in this book because they're, because of how these things are so related. But that also means that um, putting your efforts toward any of those things, like any, any parts of that not, are going to help. You give an example, though, of someone who I think we can look at as a model of who has done this pretty well. And that's the Trappist monk Thomas Merton uh, being that kind of monk really is considered kind of, they move away from normal life. They mostly don't talk, although he did, because Mm -hmm. they asked him to teach, so Mm -hmm. he did a lot of talking. Mm -hmm. But he also was very engaged in the world, both on the environmental issue. He's he's passed on now, for those who don't know him. He was a resistor of the Vietnam War, and he wrote a lot about that. He participated in the world. And yet he was a, a reclusive monk. And can you say something about that? Yeah, I, I was really inspired by his story, um, partially because, um, you know, he one of, one of the books that he initially was well known for was Seven Story Mountain, which is such, um, it, it's such a recognizable sentiment right now. It's this sort of like, um, a cry of despair and the sort of like rejection of the world. And it sold so many copies because I think people felt 
you know, they felt that. Um, and and then, you know, somewhat surprisingly, and not that long after that, um, you know, he, he, he was writing to a friend and basically disowned that book and said, you know, I had to go into town um, to, you know, you know, occasionally you have to go into town. And he looked around um, on a street corner and realized that he felt, you know, beholden to all of these people around him, that he, he loved other people and, and needed to be in the world, that, that he'd sort of made a mistake in how he had art- articulated this. Um, and so from that point on, a lot of his writing is very engaged in political issues. Um, and he, you know, still from a remove, right? Like still from his his little hut, like, you know, he wasn't just... Um, on on the property but he had his own his own little he was a hermit right like on uh, in that in that place um and so i i just find that 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 um sequence of events or that kind of evolution is is really inspiring to me as someone who you know has sometimes feels like i'm i'm having a reaction like that but then it knowing you know kind of how he dealt with that it helps you move beyond that initial knee-jerk reaction to sort of reject everything and try to find a way to, you know, remain on the on the fringes, at least conceptually, looking um, kind of almost looking at the present from the point of view of a utopian future, but but not exiting the present altogether. And I think it's actually really hard to do. But I think that's kind of the only option that we have. So this is part of what you would talk about a resistance in place. Yeah. In his place, he was a recluse. Yeah. But he was standing like that useless tree, so mm-hmm. to speak, yeah. providing great shade. I'm, I'm thinking when I read about the useless tree, Jenny, I was thinking about that other book that some of us read many, many years ago and were very disturbed by. It was called The Giving Tree. Oh, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is just yeah, the opposite of the is. useless tree. Do you yeah. recall that book? And yeah, the whole tree gets used up, right? It is actually, you know, now that you mention it, it is the opposite. It is the most useful tree, and look what happens to it. And look what happens. <laughs> it totally, the very last picture in the book is a little boy is sitting on this stump. stump. And it was so depressing, and it was, yeah. uh, oh, my gosh. So I was thinking of that in, yeah. in conjunction with what you were talking about. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Ginny O'Dell, and she is the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, JennyOdell.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Jenny O'Dell. She's the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny, in reading your book, I was reminded of a moment when I was in a large group. And within that large group, we would divide up into smaller groups at some point. And in my smaller group, which became, we were together like for two weeks, mm-hmm. and my smaller group stayed consistent, the same people within mm-hmm. that smaller group that met for part of the day. And one of the members of that smaller group uh, was a woman who grew up in Moscow under communism. Mm-hmm. And her English was not very very good, and so it was hard for her to express her frustration in being with Westerners, the, mm-hmm. with us. Mm-hmm. And finally, towards the end, she was able to convey to us how painful it was to be with us. And she said that it was because in growing up under communism in the years that she did, that she had to start to uh, edit her own thoughts because if she even had a thought that was against the regime, that then she might act on it and then it would be very detrimental to her well-being in in real physical ways. Mm -hmm. So she started to imprison her own thoughts. And being around Westerners was so difficult because we were always just jumping in with the next thought and we would be talking in this group and we'd we'd get get an idea and suddenly we'd interrupt each other and we'd just pop out of our heads with the first thing in our mind or first thing (laughs) in our you know it's just you know that you know (laughs) it how we are and um somehow in reading your book and being in your book i'm reminded the internet and social media is kind of like that. Do you do you yeah. see the analogy? I do, but I actually see the analogy on both sides. So I think that it, you know, it's exacerbates or maybe provides an easier platform for people to have, you know, hot takes, you know, knee-jerk reactions, um, you know, tweeting without thinking, you know, retweeting an article without reading it, like all kind of these things, right? But also... Um, because things have become so polarized online and it's uh, you can very easily get an angry Twitter mob if you sort of say the wrong thing, I think people also, in a strange way, uh, I don't know that they're necessarily like editing their thoughts, but they're certainly producing, um, I think often cynically producing expressions that they know will do well on that platform. And often that's things that create outrage, things that kind of push the right buttons, um, people that signal certain things to certain groups, right? Um, and so on either side, right, you don't have what you would like, which is a person who maybe paused and reflected and um, gave themselves enough time to complete a train of thought. Um, and then not only, you know, had that pause, but then shared that with the people that it makes sense to share that with, right? Not everyone or like, you right. know, hundreds of thousands of strangers. Right. Yeah. Right. And and the the whole ethos is to have more more likes and more people clicking on your Twitter or more fans or more friends or more, yeah, 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 yeah on and on and on. And then we buy into that. And I'm thinking uh, one of my phrases when I have to work with my computer a lot and on the internet a lot, and, and I'll get some 
information from somewhere, and then someone said, oh, well, look up on my Facebook page. You know, you can find the information here. And Jenny, I just, like, recoil. I, I'm sorry. I just, And I have to say to them, what I say is, I, I'm very old-fashioned. I use email. Yeah. <laughs> and in this day and time, that is kind of, Old-fashioned. It's a, it's like a another old technology that is kind of losing its relevance. Yeah, I totally agree, and I I find that very troubling because I just you know, and I'm not the only person. Actually, Gia Tolentino, um, who's yeah, yeah book. You're, you I, I I have another book. I have yeah. to tell our listeners. Yeah. I have another book on my desk here, Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino, and uh, I recommend that too. And and yeah. Jenny saw the book on the desk, and she yeah. said, "Oh yeah, that's great." She yeah. But I think you know she she talks about this in her book, and I also just heard an interview with her where she says that you know that the internet is like a is like a, a diversion of of energies, right? It's like um, you have a lot of uh, you know scary things happening. You have people who have real emotions about that, and instead of in a sort of reasoned or thoughtful way, like taking a moment to think about what you might actually do or who you can talk to or um, any of these things, right? Like instead of funneling your energy there, it just goes into this weird kind of like sea of like a shouting match that, um, and that in expressing yourself there, you feel that you're doing something, but you're actually not doing anything. The only thing you're doing is generating revenue for a social media company. <laughs> That's the only thing you're doing. Right, yeah. exactly. And let me just quote, because I wrote something out from her, from her book. Uh, she said, capitalism has no land left but to cultivate the self. Mm-hmm. And you really talk about that, too. Everything is being cannibalized, not just goods and labors, but personality in relationships and attention. Mm-hmm. So she's just really going right along with what you have discovered, mm-hmm. that, that it's all being, being co-opted for... Uh, capitalist reasons to to make more money. Right. And that totally thrives on a sense of almost like hyper-individualism. So um, I'm actually reading an amazing book right now um, with a surprising title um, called Against Creativity. Um, oh, all right. Let's write that one down. Who's that by? Uh, it's by Oli Mold, M-O-U-L-D. So O-L-I. O-L-I-M-O-U-L-D. Um. And I'm, I'm halfway through it, but he makes this really, it's like this point, I don't know why it's never occurred to me before, especially as an artist, but, you know, he says, like, creativity in the service of, or that's been co-opted by capitalism is not creativity. <laughs> he basically says that. He says real creativity is is that which kind of branches out um, towards others and, and f- actually forms something new in the world. So, like, for him, collectivizing a workplace would be something that's actually creative. Um, and I read that, and I was like, oh, this is, this, you know, it just puts words to something that I've, I've been feeling. I think Gia also talks about this in her book. I feel like she would appreciate his book as well. But, um, you know, this, the, it's, there's something really twisted about the idea that making these expressions of yourself and your sort of political identity um, online are A, generating revenue for these companies, and B, you feel like that's sort of doing something for you, like as an individual, you know? It's so individualistic, it's so narcissistic, um, and yet it's 
you know, narcissism is addictive and you get caught in this cycle and, and it just, you know, when I think about it, I get caught in it too. Right. And then, but when you wake up from that dream, it's like, there are people around you that you need to reach out to that. The only way anything is going to get done is if you do that. I'm reminded of something I learned years ago when you talk about that reaching out and you don't know what's going to come out of that reaching out. That's that's the creative space because mm-hmm. it's not yours individually and you don't have you haven't planned it all out. And I'm thinking of the way termites work. And I've been told that like, you know, these big mounds mm-hmm. that termites do inside those mounds are very intricate um, archways that are almost like Rococo in their their design. I mean, they're very, very um, lacy-like and mm-hmm. or is the way I imagine it. Um, so the termites on one side of the mound will be working and the termites on the other side of the mound will be working. And somehow they work and then somehow these archways come together. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no architect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody laid down plans for this, and, and, and there's no director of, of design here or anything. It's just this thing that happens inside this termite mound. And I'm just, I, I was reminded of that when you were talking about that kind of reaching out in our creativity. And this is something very exciting for us for the future if we can take, as you said very early on, time and space for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I I love that that's an example. It's basically like an ecological example. I, you know, talk a lot in the book about examples of emergence and interdependence um, that from ecology that have inspired me. Um, You know, I feel like that's a really important part of my identity. I'm biracial. So I am some, you know, we all emerge from two different, you know, sides, but I feel that very kind of distinctly. Um, And, and so, and even my work has often been interdisciplinary. I would say this book is a product of my encounter with things that I didn't expect. So I just, I feel a little bit like preoccupied with um, the things that emerge in unexpected ways between two different contexts or two different viewpoints and uh, and that's something that I think we is threatened right now, but it's also like the thing that we need the most. Right. And I think that you just so briefly, we were running out of time. But when you talk in the book about the gentrification of uh, neighborhoods in Brooklyn, when when the AIDS epidemic uh made so much uh, apartments available and then all these people moved in that had no history in the place and 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 there was not this cross fertilization is what I'm what I'm saying and then we have to mind our gentrification of the mind mm-hmm. and our creativity. Jenny, we could go on and on. <laughs> I wanna thank you so much for being with us on New Dimensions. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. I've been speaking with Ginny O'Dell, and she is the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, which is GinnyOdell.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3689. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.